So thank you, Gary, for that introduction, and uh, thank you all for coming this morning. So today I'll be discussing the surveillance of child maltreatment, and by the end of the talk, I really hope that you'll recognize child maltreatment as a serious public health issue, um, and also recognize the strengths and limitations of the sources of data that we use uh, to describe this problem. So just as an outline for what I'm going to discuss today, um, I'll start by defining child maltreatment just to give some context to the talk. Then I'll discuss the epidemiology of child maltreatment according to one of our most widely used sources of data, which is the um, National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System. From there, I'll discuss some of the challenges of surveilling maltreatment beyond child protection and uh, particularly in the clinical context. Uh, then I'll give a motivating example from the Connecticut Hospital Association's CHIME data on emergency department discharges. I'll briefly speak about the study that uh, Gary mentioned on uh, fatal child maltreatment using the National Violent Death Reporting System. And then I'll conclude uh, by discussing some of the public health implications of, of that work. So I'll start uh, with just the definition of child maltreatment, and for this talk, I'll be using the definition um, from the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, and that defines uh, child abuse and neglect as any recent act or failure to act on the part of a parent or a caregiver, which results in death or serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or an act or failure to act that presents uh, an imminent risk of harm to a child. And when I talk about a child, I'll be referring to any individual under the age of 18. Now, child maltreatment is classified among the constellation of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. And these ACEs are traumatic experiences or uh, stressful events that increase the likelihood of poor health outcomes across the lifespan. Now, those stressful events include things like growing up in a home with violence, um, living with a family member who misuses substances or who's been incarcerated, or being the victim of abuse and neglect. And having these experiences during childhood increases the likelihood of negative consequences like poor academic um, performance and attainment, social and psychological maladjustment, increased risk of developing a chronic or infectious disease, unintended pregnancy, suicidality, injury, and premature death. Now, in addition to the cost to the individual's health and quality of life, adverse childhood experiences, including abuse and neglect, have a huge economic cost to society. And the direct and indirect costs related to treatment and rehabilitation uh, have been estimated at $124 billion annually. Now, our current understanding of child maltreatment has been gleaned mostly from data collected within reports of Child Protective Services. Specifically, our most abundant source of data comes from, um, excuse me, our most, most abundant source of data that characterizes suspects and victims of uh, fatal and non-fatal maltreatment uh, comes from the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System, or NCANS. Now, this surveillance mechanism was established in accordance with uh, Title I, Section 106 of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. And as a result of that act, the system has been used um, to comprise all reports of abuse and neglect that are screened in and accepted 
for either an investigation or an alternative or differential response by Child Protective Services across the country. Now this is in a really uh, abundant source of data because it provides details about abuse and neglect at the child level, the perpetrator level, and the case level. And so we can assess things like differences in the distribution of maltreatment according to the victim or perpetrator, age or sex. We can explore geographic variations in maltreatment. And we can assess how Child Protective Services responds to different forms uh, of abuse and neglect according to those characteristics. So I want to take a moment to look at the epidemiology of child maltreatment using uh, the NCANS source of data. What we see is that from this data, the distribution of maltreatment um, primarily involves neglect, followed by physical abuse and sexual abuse. Now, unfortunately, from the NCANS data, we can't really elaborate on the types of injuries or conditions that comprise maltreatment beyond these broad categories. We also see disparities in the rate of maltreatment according to race. Um, here we see that Asian children are among the least afflicted or at least the least identified group and blacks and uh, American Indians among the greatest. We also see a, a large difference in maltreatment according to age. Now the NCANS data shows us that children in their first year of life are the most vulnerable with risk decreasing with age. And we see very similar distributions in the state of Connecticut. Now while the data contained within the NCANS system has led to a greater understanding of the burden of child maltreatment, it does contain some real limitations. For instance, we know that this data grossly underestimates the scope and the magnitude um, of child maltreatment. And it's easy to understand why. Because in order for maltreatment to be documented, it first needs to be identified, then it needs to be reported, and then within that report there needs to be enough information available to justify a response. So all of those criteria need to be met in order for cases to be captured within this system. Another reason for the underreporting or underestimation of maltreatment within the NCAN system is that uh, the system is dependent upon reporters. So each type of reporter, whether it be a teacher or a physician or a nurse or a police officer, is likely to um, encounter a different form of abuse that has a different etiology. And when we view the NCANS data, what we see is that many of the reports are derived from educational professionals and law enforcement professionals, and less so from medical professionals. Now, in NCANS, medical personnel refers to any uh, individual who, or any uh, medical professional, excuse me, who encounters a child victim as a part of their occupation. Um, and they represent only about 10% um, of reporters within this system. Now, this underrepresentation by healthcare professionals um, in this really abundant source of data really hinders our understanding and enumeration of maltreatment that gets recognized and treated in the clinical setting. Now, yes, there are national data sources that collect information on emergency department visits, uh, things like the nationwide emergency department sample or the kids inpatient database. But those data sources weren't developed uh, for the primary purpose of surveilling child maltreatment. And when we try to use a data set 
in a way that it was not developed for. We become limited in what uh, we're able to um, understand about the problem that we want to solve. And this is because the context and the scope of the variables contained within that system um, were intended for a very different purpose. So relating this back to the low representation of healthcare professionals uh, as reporters within NCANS, this matters to us because we know that child victims of maltreatment are high utilizers of the emergency department when compared to the overall pediatric population. Now the literature suggests that this is related to lack of primary care in this population, the extended hours of the emergency department, and the acute nature of the injuries that are sustained. Regardless of the reason for the high utilization, um, analyzing data from the emergency department provides us with a unique opportunity to identify victims of maltreatment uh, who are underrepresented and undercounted in the child protection data. Now, from a public health and epidemiological perspective, this is particularly relevant because each time a child visits the emergency department with a maltreatment-related injury, the risk of future injury, the risk of long-term adversity, and the risk of a maltreatment-related death increases. So we need a different approach to capture the experiences of these children so that we can formulate an evidence-based response. And this is where I hope the role of surveillance becomes evident. So if we take a moment to look at the public health approach to responding to a health crisis such as maltreatment, we find surveillance at the foundation. The World Health Organization defines surveillance as concerned with the ongoing systematic collection, analysis, and dissemination of health-related data used to plan, implement, and evaluate public health practice. Now, at a more granular level, surveillance serves four practical purposes. The first is to describe the burden of a problem, to monitor trends, to identify emerging problems, and to conduct ongoing evaluation of the efforts put in place to address those issues. Now, when done well, the conduct and dissemination of surveillance efforts informs the development of um, uh, excuse me, a sustainable public health intervention to improve health. And we've seen this in a number of applications from improvements to motor vehicle safety to advances in medical treatment. But when surveillance efforts are ineffective, we may end up developing strategies that misrepresent the needs of the communities and the populations that we wish to serve. Now that type of error directly impacts how we allocate our resources, how uh, we set our policy priorities, and may potentially trickle down to impact clinical practice. Now surveillance is most effective when it includes multiple sources of data to capture the breadth of a problem. And while we do have that national data collection system in NCANS that's dedicated to understanding abuse and neglect in the context of child protection, clinical presentations of maltreatment must be abstracted from the medical record. And this is a challenge because without the time to manually read through thousands of charts and notes, our ability to count and describe maltreatment in this setting is reliant on administrative coding, and specifically on international statistical classification of disease and related health problem codes, or you may know them as ICD codes. So briefly, these codes are used to generate health statistics 
and they were really developed uh, for the primary purpose of administration and billing. Now, in injury prevention, we supplement these codes with what we call external calls or e-codes. And those e-codes uh, are never used as a primary code or a primary diagnosis, but they're used to provide some perspective about how mechanisms leading to injury, uh, about the mechanisms leading to injury or some other uh, diagnosis. Um, as an example, some common e-codes that we investigate are those for falls or a motor vehicle crash or assault. So from here, I'm going to refer to both the ninth and the 10th revision of the ICD coding system. And I'm using that approach because it's necessary to understand how both versions of the system classify maltreatment so that we can accurately assess um, any true changes over time. So as the principal investigator for the Connecticut Injury Surveillance System, I'm frequently asked to quantify and describe the burden of injuries treated at Connecticut Children's and emergency departments across the state. Now for injuries with a straightforward diagnosis, such as a specific type of fracture or a contributing cause like a fall, uh, this is a simple matter of identifying the correct ICD code uh, and tabulating it. But for an outcome like maltreatment, the process becomes more of a challenge for a number of reasons. As I mentioned before, the ICD codes were first and foremost developed for administration and billing and not for data analysis. Uh, secondly, the codes don't capture the extent or the breadth of abuse and neglect. And this is really exemplified when we look at um, the code for child neglect here. Um, until the end of 2015, this code was designed to capture cases just of nutritional neglect and deprivation. But it really didn't capture the full scope of neglect-related injuries or conditions, including things like abandonment. Now, this is really demonstrative of the challenge in using administrative data because it really underscores uh, the lack of understanding about the wide range of diagnoses that administrat administrative uh, billing aims to capture or coding aims to capture. Now, third and most importantly, the ninth revision of the ICD codings were designed to capture explicit cases of maltreatment. So therefore, they weren't really used because without certainty, a medical provider wouldn't um, record a diagnosis of maltreatment in the patient record. And yet, in many cases, this administrative data is what we're designed to use to characterize the burden of maltreatment in a clinical setting. So this places a clear limitation in our research efforts, because before we can even think about developing any type of sophisticated modeling to predict maltreatment risk or emergency department utilization or prevention strategies, uh, we first have to start with the fundamental task of finding the best way to get an accurate count on the population of abused children that enter and exit our facilities. So this is the challenge that I want to discuss for the larger part of our remaining time. Uh, in response to the problem of counting and characterizing clinical maltreatment presentations, um, a researcher by the name of Patricia Schnitzer in 2011 set out to improve how we capture this. And she used a sample of hospitalized children in Missouri and identified diagnosis and ECOs that were highly probable or suggestive of maltreatment. These codes have a high sensitivity in detecting maltreatment, and since she published that paper, the codes have been used along with the explicit codes uh, to improve child maltreatment surveillance. 
So let me clarify what I mean by probable or uh, suggestive maltreatment before I move forward. So in this context, suggestive maltreatment refers to the diagnosis of an injury or a disease that's inconsistent with the age and developmental stage of the child. So examples would be a long bone um, injury in a non-ambulatory child that's not fallen or not been involved in motor vehicle crash um, or reported to experience any kind of trauma that would explain their injury. Another example would be uh, a non-congenital sexually transmitted infection in a young child. Now, most of the studies that use these codes to improve maltreatment surveillance have done so using inpatient data. And one study did use the Nationwide Emergency Department sample to evaluate maltreatment using these suggestive codes, but it was in a sample of children three years and younger, and the codes um, have actually been validated up to age 10. So after I read those studies, there were a few areas that I wanted to investigate using the data in Connecticut because I'm really interested in improving how we use our surveillance system. So primarily, I wanted to test how well this method translated from a hospitalized population to an emergency department population where the patient load is greater, where the visit length is shorter, severity of injuries differ, and where the presentations of injury and abuse may not be as apparent without some invasive um, testing um, or perhaps radiographic imaging. So myself, along with Dr. Bruce Bernstein, set out to evaluate these diagnoses uh, to surveil physical abuse and neglect in Connecticut emergency departments. And one of our students, Catherine Bentevegna, applied these codes in a study of child sexual abuse uh, with the added expertise of Dr. Nina Livingston and Dr. Amanda Durant. So these studies had three primary objectives. First, we aim to count how frequently the explicit and suggestive diagnoses codes were used in records of emergency department discharges. And we set this aim to give us an idea of how well the problem is currently being captured um, explicitly using our ED discharge data and to get an estimation of how we may improve detection with the inclusion of the suggestive or probable codes. Second, we aim to compare the use of each type of code according to various patient demographics, and we looked at that to explore potential biases in how maltreatment is documented. Finally, we aim to characterize maltreatment beyond the broad abuse categories of neglect, physical abuse, and sexual abuse with the hope that that information could be used to inform um, future prevention efforts. One of the most important applications of this work is in how it informs efforts around mitigating recidivism. So for this analysis, we use records of emergency department discharges from 2011 to 2014 in children from birth to age nine that were contained within the Connecticut Hospital Association's CHIME uh, data. Now the CHIME data gives us a real representative sample of children visiting the emergency departments in our state. During the study period, there were about 27 emergency departments that contributed to the sample, including Connecticut Children's and Yale New Haven's Children's Hospital. The data set contains information at the visit level on patient demographics, the cost of treatment, 
and up to 10 diagnosis codes, which means we can look at co-occurring conditions, which are really useful in improving our understanding of comorbidities um, of the various conditions that we were interested in. So for our methods, we conducted a descriptive analysis um, to quantify and compare the visits according to the diagnosis type, whether it be explicit or suggestive. And when I say descriptive analysis, what I really mean is that we spent the better half of a year transforming these strings of administrative codes into binary variables that we could use to characterize the various forms of abuse and neglect. So on the next few slides, what I want to do is just illustrate the differences in how we interpret the epidemiology of maltreatment based on whether we use those explicit or those suggestive codes. So the first major difference that we found was just in the sheer magnitude of the observed maltreatment that we were able to capture. The explicit diagnoses only identified 265 cases of maltreatment over a four-year period. Now that's less than the 1% of the 800,000 emergency department visits for children under 10 in a four-year period. Now while this is an obvious underestimation, it is consistent with the findings in other studies that show poor sensitivity of, um, of the ICD codes and detecting maltreatment. So this is not unusual in any sense. Uh, but it did add some justification for our need to find other ways to count this problem. Now when we added the probable or the suggestive codes, the number of unique visits increased by 13-fold. And this magnitude of increased detection is also consistent with what we found in other studies or what's been found in other studies. Now, of course, there is some risk of possible misclassification, but when we look at the types of probable maltreatment identified, I hope you'll still see some value in this analysis. Now, the next major difference that we found was in the ages of the children that we identified at risk. When we just looked at the explicit um, diagnosis codes, the average age was about five, give or take three years. But when we consider the probable diagnosis codes, we see a much younger demographic which have much, with a much smaller or uh, lower standard deviation. And that agrees more closely with the um, age at risk that we see from the child protection data. Now this is likely a result of the limited uh, verbal aptitude of young children to articulate their maltreatment experience, which is captured when we use those probable codes. So just in the next three slides, I'm going to continue to demonstrate the differences in the epidemiology by sex, race, and insurance status. So here we see um, the difference in the distribution of sex that's dependent on which type of diagnosis we use to identify maltreatment. And we see that there is a greater proportion of females being captured using the explicit codes and a greater proportion of males being captured by the uh, probable diagnoses. And several studies have identified differences in the type of and severity of maltreatment according to child sex. Specifically, we know that females um, are more likely to experience or have documented sexual abuse, and males are more likely to experience physical abuse. And this may uh, just be manifesting here. We'll see, though, in a few slides that explicit codes do better capture sexual abuse in our data. 
Now, when we assess race, the use of the suggestive or probable codes shows a large disparity in the burden of maltreatment and child race that's not as pronounced when we just look at the explicit codes. Now, we know that racial biases exist. We see it manifested in the child protection data. And it's very possible that while we see more consistency um, across the races with regard to the explicit codes, there may be bias away from documented documenting, excuse me, suspected cases of um, maltreatment in white children. Another explanation for this, or for what we're seeing here, is that there may be some emerging form of abuse or neglect that's disproportionately occurring, uh, most often in children of white race. And we may have missed out on identifying this potential disparity had we just relied on the explicit codes. From this slide, I'm not going to um, talk too much about it other than to point out the agreement. And this is kind of the only consistent agreement we saw across the coding schemes, and that's that um, public and federal insurance was the most common form of insurance across both coding types. Now, as I mentioned, the um, use of the explicit coding really limits our ability to characterize and contextualize abuse and neglect. Here we see if we just relied on the few cases of explicitly documented maltreatment, we deduce that sexual abuse may be most prevalent here um, and that very few cases of maltreatment are being treated within our emergency department. But here's what we learn from the probable uh, diagnoses. So I'm going to start with probable neglect, and I'm starting here because this is actually where we found the greatest uh, number of cases. So as in assessing neglect, on par with the literature, uh, we evaluated burns, we evaluated near drownings, and an array of injuries that were modified by appropriate um, age-specific exclusion criteria. What we found most striking were the number of medicinal poisonings in children under the age of five. We captured over 2,000 poisonings in a four-year period, which averages out to about 500 per year for this age group under five. And to be clear, this excludes medical misadventures or any poisonings that resulted uh, from current or continuing medical care. When we took a closer look at these poisonings, 60% of those children were aged two years and under, and 52% of these children were non-Hispanic white. So these poisonings are really driving the differences in the demographics between the applied, excuse me, the implied and the explicit maltreatment that we're seeing. Now, as you can see, none of these children also had a co-occurring um, code for explicit maltreatment. So from a surveillance perspective, in addition to the implications of child neglect, this is particularly interesting given the potential overlap with the public health concerns around the high rates of prescription drugs during this period as well. There's a potential extension into adverse outcomes for children, including poisonings and overdose. Now, following poisonings, we actually see dental caries as the second highest form of probable abuse, or excuse me, probable neglect. And this, too, is interesting, given the literature that we know connecting poor dental hygiene to neglect and um, related poor health outcomes across the lifespan. Now here I just wanted to paraphrase a report by the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, which states 
that when untreated, dental caries, periodontal disease, and oral infections can lead to pain, infection, loss of function, which adversely affects learning, communication, nutrition, and other activities necessary for normal growth and development. And I read that because while on the surface, dental caries doesn't seem like a severe uh, outcome, such as things like uh, burns or drownings, but this finding is a reminder that presentations of maltreatment, particularly presentations of neglect, which may not appear as abusive or egregious, potentially evolve into something more serious and still requires a preventative response. When we examined suggestive sexual abuse, we found that um, observations of alleged rape were the most frequently recorded, followed by contusions of genital organs. And I want to just take a moment and pause and acknowledge the skepticism around the use of the uh, code for contusion of genital organs within the literature, given what we know about straddle injuries. So for those unfamiliar with the term, straddle injuries are injuries to the genital or private region as a result of a fall or a slip, usually from a bike or a toy. So I want to just go through a brief explanation of how we arrived at that number and why we included it um, in our suggestive sexual abuse. So we started with 252 identified cases, um, and we excluded falls as a proxy for straddle injury. We also excluded uh, children who had a co-occurring code for a motor vehicle crash, um, which may have explained trauma in that region. And we also excluded um, any co-occurring codes for coagulation defects. So from that, we were able to remove 90 cases and ended up with 162 uh, probable maltreatment, uh, sexual maltreatment cases that were identified by contusion of the genital organs. And finally, we examined the characteristics of probable physical abuse. So we looked at things like the incidence of retinal hemorrhage in children under three, scapula and rib fractures in children under one, and long bone fractures in children um, who didn't have any recorded explainable trauma. Now I'm not going to spend much time here because what we ultimately found was that unlike um, suspected child neglect, the explicit and the suggestive diagnosis codes for physical abuse really do a poor job of identifying the issue. Um, and so we still have some work to do in identifying that within our emergency department data. Now, as you can see, there was just a large number of visits coded as assault. And then the most prevalent diagnosis was kind of this broad category of neglect, which we couldn't really do much with, given the attributes of the definition. So in October of 2015, the ICD system transitioned uh, to its 10th revision. And this change added some improvements to how we surveil maltreatment that I'm really excited about. Most notably, the new classifications expand beyond the category of child neglect, um, so that now, instead of just capturing nutritional neglect, we're able to include all forms of neglect, including abandonment. Another really exciting change is the addition of the T74 and the T76 series of codes. And this allows us to capture both uh, confirmed and suspected maltreatment. Now with the transition encoding, 
there is an idea that maltreatment surveillance may be improved because now medical providers are not held to the criteria of absolute certainty in documenting their suspicions around abuse and neglect in the medical record. So our future work uh, aims to assess how this transition to the 10th revision um, influences our detection of maltreatment. Specifically, we want to know, are the codes used, and if so, how well do they uh, correspond with the previous suggestive codes that we identified? Now, for the last little bit of time, I just want to transition away from morbidity and talk about what we're doing in terms of surveillance for fatality. So certainly one of the greatest consequences of maltreatment is the loss of life, and that loss resonates throughout our communities and our families. In Connecticut, uh, about eight children on average die each year as a result of a maltreatment-related injury. Looking again in our model of the public health approach, the work being done to improve maltreatment surveillance in our emergency department is really important and relevant to preventing fatalities because the risk of serious injury and fatalities increases with each maltreatment event and each visit to the emergency department. So our efforts to uh, reduce these deaths are directly related to how we capture and count those antecedent events. So I mentioned that eight children per year uh, on average in Connecticut die as a result of maltreatment. And on an even grander scale, child maltreatment fatalities um, result in approximately 1,700 deaths each year at the national level. And in the past um, five years, maltreatment has increased about, or excuse me, maltreatment fatalities have increased by about uh, 12%. And we see parents as the primary perpetrators. Now, what's interesting about the literature and surveillance of fetal child maltreatment is that, like so many other forms of violence, um, it's predominantly focused on understanding the victims. So much of the literature describes the attributes of the child and how those are associated with the risk of fatality. Now, I believe a more effective approach is to focus on the offenders. In this spring, I found myself in the position to do so when the CDC um, in conjunction with the American Public Health Association, solicited researchers to submit proposals which examined any form of violent death using the National Violent Death Reporting System. So recognizing the pervasiveness um, and increased rate of child maltreatment in the country, I submitted an application to study perpetrators of fatal child maltreatment, and fortunately that was funded. So in collaboration with Dr. Susan DeVitro, our medical anthropologist at the Injury Center, Dr. Laura Schwab-Reese at Purdue University, and Mark Rafan, who's a biostatistician at Hopkins, we examine characteristics of parental per perpetrators of maltreatment according to child age. And we took that approach knowing that the risk of maltreatment varies uh, with child age and developmental stage, and de excuse me, developmental milestones. Uh, so the three phases that we examined were neonatal side, uh, the murder of a child in the first 24 hours of life, infanticide, the murder of a child in the first year of life, and filicide, the murder of a child before the age of 18.
Um, so really quickly, I just want to kind of describe the data source that we use to do this. The National Violent Death Reporting System is a really comprehensive source of fatality data. Um, it includes multiple sources, such as death certificates, uh, reports from coroners, police reports, and case notes. Um, and so the linkage of all those data sources really improves our ability to understand the context of fatal maltreatment. However, this data has really been underutilized in the child maltreatment literature. So we aim to fill that gap. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to touch on the main results. We identified a little over 1,000 uh, maltreatment deaths from 2011 to 2015. Most occurred in children who were under the age of four, um, and an overwhelming majority of those children were non-Hispanic, um, of non-Hispanic ethnicity. And when we looked at the offenders, most were male, um, and nearly a quarter, or 22%, were the intimate partner of a parent. And what we found were variations in the type of fatality based on the perpetrator relationship to the child. Specifically, we found that intimate partners were more likely to be involved in the murder of an infant, and parents were more likely uh, to be involved in the murder of an older child. So the main conclusions of that study um, were a need for more male-focused interventions and further study into the abuse of children that's perpetrated by intimate partners. Um, and this really overlaps with the work around intimate partner violence being done by other researchers and research scientists at Injury Center. So I think I'm going to stop here. Um, and really what it boils down to is that child maltreatment is a really complex issue with a lot of unanswered questions. Um, I think there's a real need for comprehensive surveillance that captures clinical presentations of maltreatment. Um, to supplement what we're learning from our colleagues in child protection. Um, I think one step in the right direction is to engage in more research collaboration with physicians so that what's being seen in clinical practice is accurately captured um, and reflected in the data that individuals like myself are able to analyze, interpret, and then disseminate out into the research community. So I'll stop there and thank you for your time. <laughs>